Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, today with a special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. One meaning of corona is a halo or halo of light, so let's find the silver lining in this outbreak. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. While we're normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. We are privileged today to have Dr. Eustace Fernandez. Eustace is the Chief of Critical Care at Lutheran Hospital in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he is a pulmonologist and has been taking care of COVID patients. Eustace, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. And, and just from the outset, um, just for sake of clarity, I am um, the Chief of Critical Care at Lutheran Hospital in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, for the purposes of this podcast, I'm obviously speaking as a, as a private uh, guy and as someone who has experiences um, that I think might be helpful to others, but in no way I'm speaking on behalf of my institution. In your work as a pulmonologist and critical care doc, what is new or different about COVID than other things you've been treating your whole career? Yeah, so through my career, um, you know, I remember HIV AIDS when there were no drugs to treat it. I remember uh, influenza yearly, H1N1, um, the fear of SARS, the fear of swine flu, um, the fear of MERS-CoV, and the list goes on and on of these illnesses, but I've never seen anything quite like uh, COVID. Um, part of the problem, I think, is that we do not know the numerator or the denominator of these patients. So we don't know how many are going to get profoundly ill, and we don't know enough to say how many have it, how many have it asymptomatically or with minimal symptoms. So it's a, it's a great unknown. Um, it has, at least anecdotally, had a, uh, prond- a profound effect on healthcare workers. Um, and you, if you go to message boards or, or any social media, you hear these stories of, of otherwise healthy healthcare workers um, becoming profoundly ill. And I think as a healthcare worker who is sort of a frontline worker, that uh, makes us pause in a different way. Um, in the case of something like seasonal influenza or H1N1, you sort of knew what it was going into it. This has a natural history that has yet to be defined. It has uh, a high mortality uh, and high potential for severe illness. If we look at the examples of China and Italy, although there are reasons why we are different. Um, so there are a lot of unknowns. And so it's a, it feels like a once in a lifetime experience, certainly something um, I don't care to repeat anytime soon. Wow. Just, just wow. Is there anything about COVID that's similar to other things you've treated? Yeah, I think uh, the meticulous attention to protecting the patients from uh, this, uh, from the spread of infection to other patients and the spread to their loved ones. I think that's something that, um, that we've always emphasized in healthcare. Um, it's a good time that we re-examine basic, basic things about healthcare and hygiene. So good hand washing, understanding how a pathogen uh, like a virus or a bacteria is transmitted and the appropriate way in which to protect ourselves and other patients from that. So you hear a lot about personal protective equipment. And, um, and, and this, this is not new news, right? We've always 
had to protect ourselves. We wear gloves, we wear masks, we do, th we do these things. But, you know, if there's a silver lining in this, for me as a professional, it's, it's kind of hyper-focused me on how I put on gloves, how I take gowns off and on, how I protect my eyes, how um, the order in which I do these things. Um, there's a four or five minute YouTube video um, from various institutions about the right and wrong ways to do this. And I, I swear I watched those um, four, <laughs> five, six times just to make sure. Wow. And, and we know from experiences um, reading about uh, conditions like Ebola, a lot of healthcare workers become ill from self-contamination. So in the sense, that's one way um, in which it's similar. The other thing is that we talk about very good, um, you know, and we have these, these vigorous conversations about new and possible treatments uh, for COVID-19, but it's a good time for us to re-examine what the bedrocks of good care are, you know, um, in the intensive care unit where I work, um, what, how the ventilator should be set, how nutrition should be given, what our fluid management strategy should be, um, what we should do for sedation um, to keep our patients comfortable. So the bedrocks of care for the patient with COVID-19 are almost entirely composed of good, supportive, critical care. In other words, it's not medication specific, it's just keeping them um, safe from other infection and supporting their vital functions like breathing and heart. Right, I mean, I think, I think the bedrock of, of treatment um, for this condition is supportive. So the body ultimately declares itself, I think, and that's why we're seeing patients with high, uh, a high degree of comorbidities have the highest mortality is that uh, the body becomes harder to support if you come into a critical illness, uh, not just older, but also with heart disease or uncontrolled diabetes um, or things like that. Now, with other doctors, we talked about when the body's immune system kind of overreacts to COVID uh, and it causes what's called a cytokine storm, where there's more damage from the body's reaction to the illness than the illness itself. Have you seen that? Yes. Yeah, and, and we see it um, in the ICU, and it happens pretty dramatically. Usually, you know, the people who are going to head in that direction um, have done so probably in the first, I would say, 48 to 72 hours, and they um, seem, you know, there are a series of labs that you can order. I think um, The Lancet published a, uh, a scoring algorithm to evaluate for cytokine storm. Um, and, and I at least am I'm checking these, these labs routinely when I admit these patients to the hospital um, to see if they have any of the characteristics of cytokine storm. And it may not change how I manage them initially, but it may uh, make me more aware of what to expect as we, as we move down the line in their care. And, and we see that manifesting itself in the lung primarily with a process called ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome. And this is uh, a, a time of, of profound and acute injury to the lung, primarily by the immune system rather than the virus itself directly harming the lung. Got it. So like a, a mini cytokine storm or similar? Yeah, I similar think it's, a, it's more of a, it's, it's a, it's a manifestation of cytokine storm that, that manifests itself primarily in the lung. Are the patients I have 
now um, there are a few that have multiple organ systems in failure, but, but sort of the epicenter of failure within the body is the lung. So is the virus causing problems in the other organs or the other organs responding to the cytokine storm? I think what we're seeing is downstream effects of the cytokine storm. I okay. don't know that the, that, that the virus is directly injuring, you know, the kidneys or whatever. We, you know, we see this play out in other diseases. Um, that cause this ARDS response. Yes. Um, we see, um, and, and some of them aren't even infections. So we see this sometimes in whole body burns or severe traumas. Sure. Um, so we, we see it um, as a manifestation of a hyper-responsive immune system. So we've talked on this show about, you know, the great interest in hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin. Right. Have you right. used any of those things or not? We have, we have. And, you know, our, our, Again, um, what we are doing now is trying to define better who should have those drugs and who shouldn't. Um, the, the study using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is difficult to interpret because it was a small, um, small group of patients and it wasn't you know, the best designed study. That being said, um, you know, if these patients are are sick enough to be in the hospital, they have comorbidities that suggest that they might do poorly, um, withholding uh, some of these therapies like, like hydroxychloroquine, uh, seem, which is a pretty benign drug, yes. um, is, you know, it seems unreasonable. So for me, um, I, the evidence doesn't have to be perfect because it's unlikely that I'm going to harm my patient yes. um, with this as long as I'm monitoring for the cardiac side effects and so on and so forth. So right. I, think, I think that it's, it's definitely worth pursuing. Because we've heard that combining the two of them can affect uh, part of the heart's rhythm, the QT interval. Right. So right. there, there and, is and a mechanism had, for Plaquenil sorry, to work. There's a, a mecha, uh, you know, rational mechanism for Plaquenil, but I haven't heard anybody say a rational mechanism for azithromycin or a ZPAC. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. So um, beyond being an antimicro uh, antimicrobial, um, azithromycin is also an anti-inflammatory. So we use this drug in, um, in the you know, patients of ours, for example, who have cystic fibrosis on a chronic basis, not because it kills bacteria in the cystic fibrosis lung, but, also, uh, but primarily because it's a potent anti-inflammatory in the airway. Now, could that be a reason that patients do better? I, I don't know, but um, the the French authors who published that uh, the paper yes. uh, argued yes. that they had reduction in viral load. Yes. Um, which to me, I don't understand the rationale. I don't I don't understand that. But but I guess the final um, my 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 thought on that is is that anything we can do to reduce viral load will reduce severity of disease. So um, if it's a fairly benign treatment, we have to do it. At what stage of illness? What severity are you? giving somebody Plaquenil? I, I think um, at mild to moderate severity requiring hospitalization. So, because what we know is that patients who are hospitalized, uh, patients who are not hospitalized, who don't meet criteria for hospitalization are probably going to do okay. Excellent. Um, they're probably gonna do okay with just good supportive care um, at home with self-quarantine. Uh, self they're probably gonna do okay. Um, patients who come into the hospital with comorbidities, have oxygen requirements, we don't really know. And so in those patients, we want to give them the drug if, uh, if we are sure they have COVID. Now, I, I say um, if we're sure they have COVID, 
and and here's why. Um, right now, we're very much a prisoner of of rapid turnaround uh, of the lack of rapid turnaround testing. Yes. So we we don't necessarily want to give um, uh, patients who do not have it hydroxychloroquine because the drug, like all drugs that are associated with treatment of um, COVID nineteen, are in short supply. Right. Yes. So, so if we had a rapid turnaround test, it'd be very, uh, it'd be very easy. Now we're um, currently we're waiting um, several days um, to get testing back, um, and so it's difficult to say. So if you look at it, you know, in in New York, they have a very high positive test rate for the people they test. Yes. Um, whereas in other parts of the country, it's somewhere around eight percent. In Indiana, it's somewhere around. Uh, somewhere between eight to twelve percent. Yes. So, so if you gave it to everybody you suspected, you'd burn through a lot of drugs very quickly. Um, so, right now, um, supportive care is the bedrock, and then hydroxychloroquine, I think, is a reasonable uh, thing to do in confirmed cases, and hopefully, uh, rapid turnaround is coming quickly. I saw that the FDA just approved a point of uh, point of care testing, so that would kind of be a game changer. Yeah, I saw they approved a forty-five minute test, and then this morning I read about a fifteen minute test. Right, right. So the f- the first one is CFID, um, which is a forty-five minute turnaround test, uh, and then um, then there's a point of care test that the FDA just approved. Um, some larger institutions, university hospitals, are doing their own in-house testing, um, which. Uh, I spoke to a friend of mine at an academic place where they're doing, uh, they get eight hours turnaround. And eight hours um, sounds like a long time, uh, but compared to days, it is fantastic. And he said that, you know, it's really been kind of a game changer for them. um, Because if you think about it, while we are waiting for tests, we have these uh, persons under investigation. We treat them as if they have it. So we're using up masks and gloves and goggles. and That you might not uh, otherwise need to use and could save for others. Exactly. How has your hospital prepared for this? And when did you see things start to change in your hospital in preparation for what's coming and what is here? Yeah. So I think, I think our hospital has done a good job of preparing. So our hospital has, um, it's been on the radar for weeks to months. Um, they have been aware of, uh, they, they did very intricate planning in terms of places that would be the best ventilation um, to protect other patients from the, you know, for example, geographically isolating these patients yes. is challenging. So we identified places early on where the critically ill would be, where the patients who require care but not ICU level care would go. So they're kind of, uh, uh, they're cohorted. And we have um, developed pathways uh, for them to travel throughout the hospital that minimize their exposure to others. We've developed protocols for procedures and things like that so that the fewest number of people um, need, who are needed for the, for the hospital, I mean, for the procedure to be done, um, are in the room. Um, we have developed a testing algorithm um, so that an undifferentiated sick patient who comes in the hospital gets appropriately isolated from time zero, basically, in either from their car or from, their, uh, from the moment they enter the emergency department. Um, there's a, like many institutions have a, a 24 hour hotline um, where people can call in and, uh, and have their risk assessed by someone with very scripted questions that, that might tell them, okay, you're, you're okay for now, stay home, um, or, 
or come in through a drive-through clinic and, and get at least tested for influenza and strep to make sure it's not one of those common conditions and, or go to the emergency department and be evaluated. And then there's a direct pathway to the emergency department where they come into contact with uh, very few staff, very few other patients and are cohorted immediately. So um, I think that we don't know what this is going to look like. So if you don't know what something's going to look like, you have to prepare as though it's going to be really, really bad. Um, it's, I feel that most hospitals um, are preparing um, in terms of supplies, personnel, etc., cetera, um, for the very worst. And by the time we use up our supplies, all of our supplies and our ventilators and things like that, we'll, we'll be out of people to take care of them. So we will have done the best, uh, we have, will have done our best by them to the best of our ability. So basically what you're seeing now is a response that's entirely consistent with a, a Catholic social teaching view of solidarity, subsidiarity, the common good and respect for human dignity. I, I think so. And, 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 you know, um, one of the things I'm, I'm proud of is that, is that uh, individual human dignity has always been at the center of our planning. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, I obviously don't work at a Catholic hospital, but it, it's, you know, it's been very patient centered um, and, and trying to identify the common good, um, trying to identify the way to protect, to do the most good for the most number of people with available resources, which, um, which promotes, you know, the principle of solidarity and the common good. So, um, yes. Paint a picture of what the atmosphere is like on the unit where you're treating COVID patients. Yeah, so, um, so everyone um, there understands that we have an obligation to take care of the patient. So one of the, um, one of the um, principles we, we talk about often is, is the duty to care or the duty for care. So all of us are, have entered into this um, agreement or a unwritten contract or a social contract that as healthcare workers, we know that we might be doing something that is, has put us in harm's way. So you could su substitute the word AIDS for COVID-19 or hepatitis yes. C or whatever. So we, we understand that. Um, we also understand that with the duty to care um, is also an obligation of the institution to protect those who work for the institution. So our institution has been good about supplying scrubs, supplies, um, support, educational support uh, for the people who work in that unit. Most of the people who work in the unit have families and, and you know, the, the psychology of the healthcare worker um, that they might be taking a, an illness home to a loved one, particularly a vulnerable young, uh, loved one, creates a more tense environment. Everyone there is, is highly professional. We, um, it's a very quiet unit. Um, we, I, we have uh, made arrangements so that um, the IV pumps and things like that are outside the room um, of our COVID positive patients so that the nurses can, are entering the room as little as possible. So if they need to hang a new antibiotic or change an IV fluid, mm -hmm. they can do it without entering the room. Um, we uh, have um, carts outside each room um, that have uh, the protective equipment. Um, so you change in and out of every outside the room. Um, we do. We have a protocol um, that I don't 
um, I don't think I need to go into, but, but it's to uh, minimize cross-contamination um, across rooms and ensure that we're not contaminating ourselves. So, yes. Are you wearing a jumpsuit like we saw in the Italian videos? Yeah, so, so, um, so we're not. We're, we're wearing um, gowns that are not permeable, um, goggles or face shields. Um, because I wear glasses, I wear goggles and then a face shield over that. And, and then before um, the eye protection goes on, we put on the, the respirator, the N95 mask. Okay. And that's a different and, one for each patient. Right. Got it. Right. So, so the CDC has protocols um, for how you can reuse uh, N95s uh, across um, patients who are infected. So for three or four COVID patients, yes. um, it's not necessary to change the N95. So we're, we're using strategies to conserve supply. Now, I've seen some hospitals has actually been providing material to the public to sew masks. Mm -hmm. What's going on with that? Is that helpful? And if so, why? So I think it's helpful in a couple of different ways. Number one, psychologically, it creates, it, it makes, um, it promotes the principle of solidarity. So mm -hmm. it tells us we're all in this um, together and we are um, cre creating these things as, a, as an act of love and solidarity with the healthcare worker and, and with vulnerable brothers and sisters. Um, secondly, there, is there evidence that the hand-sewn masks um, protect transmission of the virus? Um, I think that's a little harder question. I don't think that there are published papers on this, um, but um, they may protect a member of the public from transmitting virus to another person. So, um, so in a sense, I think, you know, this is very much the Hong Kong, Singapore yes. approach that every, everybody wears a mask. And, and then, you know, there are, there are guidelines out there that, you know, you, once you've burned through your supplies, a, a you know, use a bandana, um, yes. you know, et cetera. And so it, you know, does anybody know that it is going to protect you against a, uh, a particle that's 0.3 microns or smaller? Probably nobody knows that. Um, but, you know, there are, there are things that are good about it, um, for sure. So of our listeners, which ones should wear a mask in which situations? Yeah, so I think clearly, um, I, yeah, so, so I think anywhere where you think you might come into contact with someone who might be ill um, with this coronavirus or have something that's easily transmissible. And then someone who would not, uh, who you would not want to transmit something to. So a vulnerable a member of family or at the grocery store or whatever. Um, so, so basically protection of self and protection of others from self. And I, I think the second piece is probably the more important. So the idea of a healthcare worker wearing a mask I read an article about Massachusetts General saying anyone who is in their building, whether it's a doctor, nurse, uh, respiratory therapist, or an administrator, is wearing a mask. That's not really to protect. That's not really to protect them from the virus. It's to protect um, transmission of the virus from those asymptomatic carriers to a uh, to a vulnerable person. So they've got the mask on the whole time they're in the building. Yes. Not just in, when they're in the room with a patient. Exactly. Wow. Do you think that's a reasonable approach in all medical practices right now? I don't know. I think the jury is still out. But, but here's the thing is that if you have one worker who, who becomes ill and then 
that worker has had close contact with other workers, it's a threat to your workforce, yes. right? I, and and you you know you could have ten percent of your of your nursing staff or your or your hospitalist program or your ICU program gone, um, not because they're ill, but because they had a high risk exposure. Now, if everybody wears a mask uh, according to CDC criteria. Um, at the with a with um, that's considered a low risk exposure, so you can you you're allowed to be a little more creative in terms of doing self monitoring and things like that. Like for me, um, I, I do self monitoring every day. So I, I take my temperature twice a day. I monitor myself for symptoms, and um, and and I say a lot of prayers. And and that's <laughs> sort of my regimen because there's a consequence to me getting sick. There's a consequence to my family if I get sick. There's a consequence to all of the people I come in contact with in the workforce. Um, the critical piece of this is, is keeping your, your healthcare workers healthy so that they can care for the sick patients. What has surprised you most about the response of the staff in this pandemic? Well, I think that the whether it's stated uh, externally or internally, um, there is this quiet acknowledgement of the duty to care. Um, and, and I have not really had any encounters with staff where they did not want to take care of one of these patients, or they were reluctant to do what was necessary for the care of the patient. And, and the quality of people I work with is, is, is extraordinarily high. And so that was very, very unsurprising to me. Um, the pleasantly surprising thing is, is the um, idea of solidarity that you see when you walk into these units of people making sure everybody is fed, of making sure that, um, that people are getting breaks when they need to, that, uh, that staff who might be more vulnerable be just because they're a little bit older have lower risk assignments. Um, and those, those kinds of little acts of kindness along the way are, are really building up the institution. And then, and then another pleasant surprise is, is the generosity of spirit of people in the community. Um, so, you know, a family um, couldn't come in and be with their loved ones. So they uh, had lunch brought to the COVID unit um, in, in, way, in a way that was parceled out so that there wasn't a lot of congregation. There wasn't a lot of uh, cross contamination between between the uh, staff when they when they got their lunch. And it, it's things like that 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 create this this community of people who are are caring for others. Um, the other thing that that has been um, surprising and shocking to me is the number is is the fact that other people are still coming in with all the usual illnesses. So I naively imagined that, you know, so when, when COVID hits, we just stop seeing strokes and heart attacks and end-stage lung cancers and all of these other things that still happen. And, and the acuity for me of these patients' illness is unchanged, but the acuity of their isolation their desolation, their um, uh, feeling of abandonment and fear has been 
um, has really shocked me. Um, because of the limited visitation ability, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it is hard enough to be critically ill. It is hard enough to have a terminal diagnosis. It is hard enough um, to be hooked to a machine um, for any reason, um, but to not have your wife or your uh, husband or your mom or dad or siblings to be able to look you in the face, to hold your hand, to pray with you, to uh, make a joke with you. Um, it is an extraordinarily painful wound um, to the patient and to the healthcare worker to observe. Um, and so, so that's been surprising. That's been the surprising non-COVID news. It's collateral damage of COVID. Um, and it's, you know, it, it again points to that principle of, of how, do we pre how do we preserve the, individual, the individual's dignity during this time of, of um, isolation, which can be very dehumanizing? How do we create a spirit of solidarity with those families, um, with, the, um, with uh, those who are suffering? So, you know, one thing we're doing every day is we're calling um, so in, the, in our COVID unit and in our ICU in general, in all of our ICUs, we are calling patients' families every day. The doctor is calling every day oh, and saying, very good. here is an update on how your loved one is doing. Um, do you have any questions? I'm sorry, you can't be here. And it's, it's a, it's, sometimes it's a brief conversation. Sometimes it's a long conversation. Um, and, uh, and, but, and even if the medical condition hasn't changed, it is, you can almost hear them, you know, breathe in and breathe out a little more steadily, knowing that someone has seen their loved one today, someone is taking the time to talk with them. And, and, and I think that's critically important. Um, I've had, you know, there, there have been um, patients, you know, particularly um, patients who have been critically ill with something else who are intellectually disabled. And, and there's uh, a particular terror for them uh, to go through it without their usual caregivers. And you know, I've had conversations with parents who have never, ever in, in their child's life, now they're an adult, never left their side during an illness and now are in the situation where they're not with them. Um, when they're going on life support or where they're struggling uh, with agitation or, or things like that. And, and it's, it's, been, um, it's been very, very difficult uh, to observe. Um, I've had the, op I've, but it's also been a great time of grace because I've had the opportunity um, to offer prayer with uh, some of these families, um, to uh, console them with words, and to provide them with information um, as to how their how their loved one is doing. So um, it cuts both ways a little bit. Are priests allowed in the hospital? I believe that they are. Um, I haven't seen any. Um, as yet, I haven't personally witnessed it, but we have uh, on staff chaplain who goes into all of the units and is available for prayer. Um, There's not always Catholic chaplain, um, but there is the opportunity for prayer. So they would not reject a Catholic priest coming in who was bringing the sacraments perhaps to a patient who'd requested right. it. Right. So, so we take those on a case by case basis. So if I'm the attending physician and a patient requests it, um, I would make that request to our administration, and that is something that I, I am very confident would be approved. How are you personally practicing social distancing right now outside of the hospital? Well, it's a, it's a difficult thing because 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have five children and, uh, and, um, children, particularly the younger ones don't, don't understand social distancing. <laughs> no, they don't. So, so there's, you know, again, there has to be a sense in which we, we do not let the disease, um, uh, disintegrate the social fabrics, these little churches, uh, yes. that are our families. So, um, and and selfishly, um, I I need contact with my my wife and my children uh, to continue to do what I do on a, a day in day out basis. So um, when I'm in the COVID unit, I wear uh, COVID scrubs. Um, they don't come home with me. I take off my shoes and everything else before I take off my shoes in the garage before I come in. I walk directly into the laundry room, um, throw my clothes directly into the wash. And then, um, and then make it directly into the shower and uh, to minimize contact. Um, in terms of, you know, we, my mother is in an assisted living. My, my uh, in-laws live uh, by themselves in, in a town um, not far from here, but we haven't seen them. Um, my, and so, so those kinds of distancing, distancing ourselves from those who are most vulnerable makes the most sense. And, you know, in a sense, um, when you're trying to have a society that functions, um, eventually, I think you, you reach a point where you say, okay, we, we have to compassionately isolate or protect those who are our most vulnerable. And then the rest of us uh, have to create something as close to normal as we can. And I think that's what we're doing now. Do you think that there's going to be a let up on the social distancing anytime soon, or you think we're still weeks or months from that? I don't know because we're very data poor. I think that it's probably going to be a situation where certain epicenters are much slower to return to some, some degree of normalcy. These will be the urban centers. Um, and then there will be areas uh, that can, can do it more rapidly. Um, you know, like North Dakota, for example, they're already yes. pretty socially distant. Um, <laughs> they probably, <laughs> it probably seems like day-to-day -day life is relatively unchanged. Um, but, but I, you know, we are spread, we, there has, there has to be a certain amount of caution in comparing us, you know, to Italy or, or to um, the Hubei province um, because we're, we're spread out over an enormous landmass. We have variable amounts of testing, um, I think it's too soon to say what's going to happen because we don't know exactly how we're doing. Um, the intervention, the, the patients we're seeing now are reflections of what we were doing two weeks ago. You know, We've had questions from listeners that they've been wanting to ask of somebody who's a pulmonologist, such as how big is the risk of COVID pneumonia in a smoker versus a non-smoker? I don't think we know. So if we look at uh, the Chinese data, it's very skewed because in China, 50% um, of men are smokers, 2% of women are smokers. So we don't know much about how, um, how smoking affects uh, someone's risk for, co uh, for severe COVID disease. If we look at the Chinese data again and, and, and look at what comorbidities predict mortality, you would say, um, you would think that Intuitively, if you had chronic lung disease, you would be at the top of that list, but that's not the case. It's cardiovascular disease. It's diabetes. Um, oh, how about autoimmune it, disease? Didn't register. Okay. Didn't register. Good. Good. Um, but, um, but, uh, but that's interesting, you know, um, that age, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes appear to be 
the most um, the most telling signs um, of mortality, the highest risk for mortality. And there was just a paper published in JAMA, I think, about um, the risk of mortality being much higher in patients with COVID-19 who, who develop a condition called myocarditis, which is, um, which is inflammation of the heart muscle that's caused by the virus. And, and they, they can um, die suddenly and have a much worse outcome. Oh my. I've also been asked about asthma or bronchitis, but it sounds like they're not at increased risk. They, they might not be. I mean, you know, the, um, the, these diseases tend to travel in packs though, right? I mean, yes. somebody with heart disease also may have some underlying lung disease or may also have diabetes. And, and it's very difficult to parse out what is the, what's the driving factor for severity of illness. Um, but I think, you know, it's intuitive that someone with with um, underlying lung condition to start might be more vulnerable, uh, might be more vulnerable at higher risk for severe disease. Okay. How quickly can the disease progress from something that looks mild to something that's very serious? Yeah, I think it was probably, you know, if, again, if you look at probably the best data we have is from China, of course, and, you know, day five um, from onset of exposure is when symptoms are onset, then um, you know, around day seven or so, uh, you get admitted to the hospital. And then by day 10, if you're, if you're uh, going to get really sick, you're really sick. So I'd say that 72 hour period, um, you know, and, and we're hearing stories from around the country of people having uh, rapidly progressive disease. Um, some of the radiologists are uh, publishing um, that if you, um, if you can diagnose COVID um, with rapidly progressive findings on a CAT scan, um, that predicts a poor outcome. Um, in China, there are some hospitals that uh, had specific COVID CAT scanners, and uh, and they were using CAT scan alone to make the diagnosis. How do you do that? Well, we see these things on the CAT scan called the ground glass opacities, and if you see these ground glass opacities on the CAT scan, that's highly suggestive um, in the right patient at the right time in the middle of a pandemic of, of COVID. What do you wish that Americans were doing now that we're not doing? Well, I think, um, you know, I, you know I'm, a, I'm a Catholic and, and I wish we were, I wish we had capacity to pray together in community. Um, in the in the first days that we started with this, it reminded me very much of uh, the aftermath of 9-11. And, yes. and what we saw after 9-11 was churches were packed with yes. people to pray. And there's a certain poverty of us not being able to come together and pray. So I wish we as Americans, I, and I think we are, were, had, had the capacity to pray together and to pray often together um, in a public way. Um, you know, in Poland, for example, the, the priests there have just started saying more masses. Yeah, I love that. And can, can <laughs> observe social distancing. And, yes. and, and that's fantastic. Um, my brother, who's, who's a pastor, had to, had to tamp down um, uh, adoration because there were too many people showing up. Too many. So that's, that's a good um, problem. <laughs> that's a good problem. That's a good problem. Um, but um, I, think, I think prayer is, is something we as Americans can never do enough of. I mean, we, we always... We, we can always enter into that idea of, well, what is God trying to teach me with this horrible situation we're in? What is God trying to teach me from isolation? And, and like, I, I personally have had a lot of reflection on, on this idea of, you know, 
the Tower of Babel, you know, this idea where, where we believe with our smartphones and our technology and our ease of communication and our economy that's more consumption than production, that, that we can dictate the pace of our lives. And, um, and I, I think this has really upended all of that and, and made us confused in our ways. And, and, and maybe on the other side of this, we'll become uh, more aware of the natural rhythm that, that God um, has created us for and realize that we are never meant to, to maybe be as busy as, as we are, or maybe be as technologically driven as we are, or um, to create these false idols of, of um, technology and media and, uh, and celebrity and, and all of those things kind of go away. Um, In other words, we might learn better how to be human beings instead of human doings. Right, right. And, and, and it's, a, it's a conversation I, I had, I've had often with uh, myself, is that on the other side of this, are we going to be more human or less human? Um, are we, are we going to be, uh, people who live in solidarity or are we going to be the, the person who, who steps over the little old lady to get 24 rolls of toilet paper before, her? you know, I mean, who are we, who are we going to be? And, um, and, and I think that that's, that's an unanswerable question, obviously right now. Um, I, I, I do think that, um, there's an American spirit of independence and resilience and, uh, this idea of autonomy um, that makes things like social distancing um, and staying in your home and self isolation or self quarantine more difficult for us. Yes, and I think I think that that's another opportunity for us is to learn that autonomy is not king. Autonomy is not king. Um, so this idea Amen. that 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 I choose and therefore because I choose this, it's right, um, is is not correct. And and the idea. You know, and, and we don't want the pendulum to swing too far away from the idea of, in, of self-determination, but, but at the same time, we have an opportunity to rediscover solidarity, um, love of neighbor, care for neighbor, uh, and, and a look to the most vulnerable members of society and make sure that they're well cared for. I forgot to ask one medical question before we close, and that is I just saw a report today about potentially using an immune globulin or serum from patients who have recovered from the disease to treat those with the disease. What do you think about that possibility? I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think that it is hopeful and promising. So there's evidence for this, and it was, it was uh, done uh, with both SARS and H1N1. Um, and, uh, in, in both those cases, uh, there were, um, trends towards less severity of illness, less time in the hospital, um, uh, less mortality in the case of H1N1 in the, in the published study. Uh, so, so I think that that shows a lot of promise with regard to COVID-19. Um, there was one uncontrolled case study of five patients, um, who were treated in this fashion and, and they, they made recovery. Um, hard to know what to make of that because, uh, you know, there were 10 to 15 days into their illness, and there are a lot of confounding factors. Now, the, the study that's beginning in New York um, is the ideal study, in my opinion, uh, because they are taking patients who are not severely ill. They're taking patients who are moderately ill, who need to be in the hospital, and who have some signs of respiratory insufficiency, and, and treating them. And this is the patient population that will be the game changer when you come uh, to conversations about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, or, or uh, are we going to have enough ICU beds? If you, can, if you can arrest the disease before severe illness 
occurs, then you might be able to un- unburden the health system and not may not have to make um, these these uh, conversations occur about you know should patients with COVID nineteen who are critically ill be um, a mandatory DNR should um, should we allocate ventilators should we use one ventilator for for patients uh, etc. So I think early administration in the disease process of a treatment like this or hydroxychloroquine or anything that, um, that uh, can buff up the immune response to the disease is probably the right thing to do. As we close, are there any final comments you want to make to listeners? Well, I think the, the plea would be um, to continue to pray, uh, pray for um, God's, uh, mercy on his people um, as we as we struggle through this pandemic, um, which hopefully is a once in a lifetime occurrence, um, would ask specific prayers for um, specific things. Number one would be protection of the most vulnerable. Number two would be protection of the healthcare workers who are charged with with taking care of the most vulnerable, and that means a steady supply of of protective equipment a healthy supply of workers and people who have right hearts and heads about, about the work they're doing. And then the third thing uh, would be, and it's a very specific thing would be availability and rapidity of testing um, because we don't know what we don't know and we don't know who's sick and who's not sick. And really the tide begins to turn when you can identify and separate and 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 that to me is is the key so those are very very specific things and then the last thing would be to pray for those collateral damage patients those who who don't have covid-19 but who are alone and scared and without their families and without usual means of support um when they are ill uh that god would console them that their caregivers would would um always be able to see christ in them and uh and um, be able to continue to um, participate in the healing ministry of, of Jesus with them. Dr. Eustis Fernandez, thank you so much for sharing your precious time and wisdom with us today on Dr. Doctor. And thank everybody for listening to another episode of the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.